Mark Dillick, Christy Take It, episode 32. And today we're delighted to be joined by the brilliant Pat and Greg Kane from the fantastic Hugh and Croy. We'd like to thank Emma for organising this and getting us in contact with the lads and arranging for the chat. Uh, it was a really interesting chat. We talked about all our hits and plus their upcoming show based on the Irish songbook. Um, this has happened on the St. Patrick's Day weekend. And Derek, it was a, an enjoyable chat, wasn't it? It was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, we'd like to take this opportunity to thank our sponsor for this week's episode, True Flow Energy Systems. True Flow specializes in get, gaining the maximum output from your energy system with minimal input in terms of fuel, effort, and cost. They specialize in getting you the most from your home or business energy system, ensuring that it works as efficiently as possible with the least amount of cost and effort. You can find them on trueflow.ie and also on Facebook. <laughs> Hugh and Croy, thanks for coming on. Let Christy take it. We're delighted to have you. Yeah, we're delighted to be here. Who's Christy? Ah, no, that's the question. Ooh, it's Christy. <laughs> so, <laughs> if you know your uh, Irish, I won't say Irish history, but there's a famous Irish movie called My Left Foot, Boy, starring yeah. Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah. In the film, Christy Brown wants to take a penalty, and his brother screams, Let Christy take it. Oh, it was a very apt. So, guys, can I ask you, growing up, did you just come from a musical family? Was there music in the house? And father was a crooner. Father was a crooner, really. Uh, Sank Sinatra, Matt Monroe, Tony Bennett. So that was that. And then lots of uh, lots of watching Oscar Peterson show, BBC Two Saturday night just before the football. Um, so that came from our, our, our dad, really. Mum, not musical at all, although she did love opera. She was, and she, and she used to, she stayed in Italy in the 50s and she would used to go and see Maria Callas at La Scala. So with some musical background, Greg, I guess, yeah. Uh, yeah, there was a, um, I guess, yeah, it wasn't uh, formal training or anything like that. Um, <clears throat> my mum and dad encouraged us to be creative, I guess, and be, um, What's the word? Diligent and studyful or studious. Um, so that all those attributes you need to become a musician. So they encouraged that, and it's a guess, which is how they kind of helped us. Yeah, and, and I was uh, I, I was reading an interview you did there, Pat, with your top five albums uh, from a while ago. I think it was in the Guardian when these papers. Mm-hmm. And you uh, you, you, had, you had quite a broad palette. So what kind of music would have influenced you growing up? Um, we will I do the Nana story. Do you, are you wanted to part? No, you do it. Go. Um, our mum and dad are hard-working, working-class parents. Um, so they lent on an old next-door neighbour to look after us. She would look, get us to school, and she would make us our lunch, make us a dinner. She would look after us. Um, <clears throat> and she had a son who was a nightclub owner in London, and I remember he would come up every now and again to visit his mum. And he drove a black Lincoln Continental. Remember the ones with the doors, the shotgun doors, as they say. And he was the most glamorous man. He looked like Al Pacino. The, the image I've got of him is Al Pacino. He was quite small, but he was very kind of like charismatic. 
And I remember him running us to school in his Lincoln Continental and he took a wee shine into us because you know, I guess we were so much younger than him and he, we were keeping his, his mother sort of on her toes and, and bright eyed. So when he passed, he died young. He left his whole record collection to us. So this box appeared and there was first edition um, Times Are Changing, first edition Rubber Soul, first edition um, What's Going On, um, classic albums where our younger brother still got all those records. Um, so that's where the sort of eclecticism came from me. I remember falling asleep to Peggy Lee one night or falling asleep to uh, Jazz at Carnegie Hall or falling asleep to Rubber Soul or Aftermath or um, Help or um, he was a big Horace Silver fan. There was some Horace Silver rec records in there as well. So that's where it comes from for me. Yeah, and, and um, Bobby, there was a Bobby Darn oh, record yeah. called Bobby Darn Winners, which are two cheesy ones at the front and then all his jazz stuff. Uh, so Bobby Darn was a big influence on me uh, vocally. But yeah, that Gregory tells the story well. And then obviously it's just punk and post-punk, you know, and that whole punk, post-punk thing is quite important because punk wasn't really turning us on musically. But the punk attitude and post-punk was, well, you can sound like, a soul, a soul classic, but you can be singing about what you want to do, or you can mix it in with electronics, or you can do anything you want. So post-punk was musicianship-led, and punk was attitude-led, so we were inspired by the post-punk, and then we so often describe ourselves as post-post-punk, you know, or new pop. So you would, it would be cool to be in the charts, it would be cool to be on top of the pops, but you would be saying something or doing something interesting or smuggling something in, sugar pill, uh, while you were doing it. So you would be inspired by we would be inspired by Talking Heads and and um, Ian Jury in that respect and those kind of Elvis Costello, those kind of bands. But then once they, then they start, they would talk in their interviews about the people that inspired them. And so then you would go back to the Marvin Gaye's and the James Brown's and the Sly Stones and so and the Temptations and so on and so on. So yeah, that, that's our stew. Uh, um, and then and then. Certainly, when we started to make music, the guy who brought it all together was Prince. So you were just listening. You were on tenterhooks waiting for every Prince album coming out because he's just a Duke Ellington of everything of, of 20, end of the twentieth century, and just he would just synthesise everything that you'd ever heard and to put it on one record. So that's the kind of context. Yeah, we were we were actually talking to uh, Martin McAloon from Prefab Sprout a way to go. Oh, great. oh my god! He said the same thing about um, Prince that he he got in contact with his promoters and he wanted to go to a Prince concert and he hadn't got the nerve to even go up and speak to him. He got in touch his distance, but he seems to be that common thread through uh, popular music, doesn't he? Oh, he's incredible. Uh, your background in classical music or classical trained music, am I correct? How was that when compared to moving into pop music? Um, I guess um, classical music gives you the rudiments and it gives you the theory. And then um, <clears throat> as anything, as any creative, you kind of have to get the skills and then rip the rule book apart once you get the skills and then figure out what your own voice is and what, what you should do. I mean, I know there's a lot of great musicians that have never been trained and never been taught how to play it, but um, I had a great 
had two great piano teachers. The local one was a wee old woman who was very patient with me. And then the one at school, he was a kind of um, a revered uh, church organist, John Pitcaisley, and he was a choral master as well. So he was always teaching harmony and uh, concentrating on melody. And um, I was very, very lucky. And I played saxophone from a young age as well. So I had a very flamboyant saxophone uh, teacher who used to tell me stories of him living at large in London in the 50s and the 60s with Ronnie Scotts and, and all these sort of guys. So I had quite a good background, a good mix of, of teachers. But again, with classical music, it's all about practising. I mean, I was a wee bit late tonight because I was trying to calm my eight-year-old daughter down. But she um, has now just started to reach out and say, Dad, can I learn how to play piano? So we've started with the basics and it's brought lots of memories back to me about the fundamentals and the rudiments of music. Um, I'm so lucky that I've got that behind me. But I mean, musically, does it does it affect my writing? It does. I mean, every time I kind of write or either I present a kind of classical cadence or a classical chord progression to part, he gets excited and says, do that again, do that again. And I'll usually reference some classical composer in a way like, oh, we can't do that. That's kind of been done. But by the time we're finished with it, by the time you know we've, we've reacted to it, it's unrecognisable. But there's a lot of classical music sort of seeps into what we do at the very early stages of us writing. And then, you know, by the time we're done, as I said, it's gone. Athlete hymns as well. So th th so that's a crossover. So a lot of, uh, we were both, you know, singing and singing and St. Augustine's and Coatbridge. Um, so that, and then obviously that, all that's joined together by people like uh, Van Morrison and uh, Tom Waits and those kind of people. So they sort of join all these, all these things together. Uh, some people have said that there's an awful lot of people who listen to Gregory playing and hear an awful lot of classicism, Chopin and various bits, you know, which is great. Why not? Keeps you going, keeps you alive, you know, making an ADM record next. That's that's parts of that sound a bit like Debussy as well. So, <laughs> um, Can you tell us about the formation of the band and like, you know, getting the brother in on the band and the two years going ahead of it? Um, uh, it, was a, we, it was a kind of it was a trail of kind of broken bands that we kind of broke. <laughs> we, we, kind of, we came into other people's bands and broke them up, <laughs> and then decided that we should maybe just stick together if we were going to be so destructive of other people's setups. The Winning Losers, I believe, was one of the bands that we could shatter to a thousand pieces. You, know? <laughs> you were much more of a you were much more of a, a a decent musician, proper musician, than I was. I was a dilettante. I was a lead singer. You were a lead singer, but unfortunately, every band needs a lead singer. Pat, so <laughs> you're a necessary, you're a necessary evil. <laughs> so, I mean, were you both in bands together before Hugh and Croy, or was that was that the first project you jumped in on? Yeah, we were in bands before. Um, um, I was in young, but I mean, you're talking about still at school. You're talking about 14, 15, 16, 17, that sort of age when we started playing in bands together. But as Pat said, we were so disruptive, um, I guess. And I don't think... <laughs> we weren't very democratic, to be honest, Pat. How <laughs> much democracy so, in music is. <laughs> so I guess we had a strong vision and we had knew what we wanted to do. So I think the thought of actually joining another band was just so demoralising. We thought we'll just do it on our own, see what happens. Of your time, well now, cut your ears, the 
phrase hue and cry and, and, and what it means did you guys did you see yourselves as outsiders or was it just a you know like the, the phrase hue and cry i think is like a criminal scream or you know you see somebody you raise a blackguard well insider outsiders sophisticated pop i think it's a phrase that people are using in the magazines these days that our era and part of the sophistication of it was that you would you wouldn't just write a love song, you'd write a Withdraw My Labour of Love song referencing 100 Years of Marxist Theory. That that was the point, right? You wouldn't call your album 10 Nice Songs, you'd call it Seduced and Abandoned after a French philosopher called Jean Baudrillard. I mean, that, so that's the... so you And then you try and get that on Saturday morning television amongst all the balloons and the, and the stuffed animals and the puppets. So that was the craziness, the fine, fine craziness of the era. It was that you were, as we've said, you're coming out of the punk attitude, but the mainstream is really opening up and MTV's bedding in and there's a lot more media going around. So you're just, you've been an absolute chancer on every level. So you're spending all the record company's money on going to New York and getting all your favourite players in, you know, and rather than call your album A Ray of Sunshine, you call it remote and you get away with it. And we got away with it. We've been getting away with it up to the present. We got away with it at quite a high level for quite a while, probably longer than we should have. Um, but, you know, spoiled, spoiled ourselves rotten and gave ourselves high standards and unfortunately haven't been, haven't been able to deviate from them since. And uh, did, did the name you and Cry come from the single Strength to Strength or had you already got the name before you wrote the song? Name was, uh, was, was, your, was it's, a, it's a duo name, right? So the, the hue and the cry, the background and the foreground. Um, and it's also an attitude name, you know, it's sort of, it, it presumes that you're going to be protesting about something. And there was lots that one wanted to protest about at that particular time. So yeah, we're, so you, we're beautiful, we're beautiful, quiet men now, you know, no <laughs> protests. So you eventually, you got signed to your first label, uh, Stampede. What was that like? Um, there was a nightclub in Glasgow called The Sub Club. <clears throat> it was quite a famous, infamous nightclub on Jamaica Street. Um, just before the Kingston Bridge, Jamaica Street, Kingston Bridge. Mm. Um, so the sub club was the kind of home of funk in Glasgow. And this is well before rave culture and all that sort of club culture. So it was all about, as we talked about early Prince, James Brown, um, Sign the Family Stone and, you know, just that sort of soul funk. And the guy that was the main DJ there um, had heard us play um, and Graham Wilson was a lover of funk and a lover of Latin music, but also he loved his crooners. He loved his Sinatra and he loved his uh, Tony Bennett and stuff like that. So he saw that in what we were trying to do. And he gave us the platform and the vehicle to release our first record because Stampede Records was the kind of part of the whole sub club culture. So there was, um, and that then became Soma Records, which then became one of the biggest dance labels in the country. Um, so we were the first release on Stampede Records. Um, it was all from that nightclub uh, and from the guy that was the main DJ there. So, yes, yeah, so we were very fortunate. And I think it was a record of the week in a few different magazines. And I listened to it the other day there because Pat and I are going to play it very soon. A gig we're doing. Um, <clears throat> and it's the most bombastic thing, brother. My goodness. It's the weirdest chorus. The chorus goes really dark for some reason. It's the, the kind of... The verse is a kind of thumping, kind of rock funk thing, and then the chorus goes all weird Latin. 
It's very strange. It splits the difference between Lionel, Lionel Richie and you two. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of like Jacob Collier meets the Cure. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. weird. Yeah. But I mean, it's still sounding good. It's still sounding big and triumphant. And oh yeah, 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 confident, full of testosterone. So that's where that record came from. That's where Stampede Records were came out of. Can you tell us a little bit of the, your process of writing? Whether you know the, the lyrics versus the music together apart. Who gives what to who? Very diverse, and that's possibly why you know we're still. Um, reaching for things because we don't quite know where, where the spark is going to come. Um, I'd say recently, um, because of this electronic record that we're preparing, um, it's it's something it's it's totally exciting because you're being triggered by something. I'm always triggered by something that I think I've never heard before. When Gregory does something, I think I've never heard that before, and I'm like, let's go there, you know, or, or I hear something that is just as classic, sounds classic. Well, let's go there. So, but what we still do, uh, and we'll, uh, I'm sure Gregory will confirm this, is that once we have come up with something in front of the grooves, we switch all the machines off and we just play it PV, um, piano vocal. And then if it works there, which that has to work there because that's part of our professional life is doing piano vocal and acoustic, then we turn all the machines back on and try and fit, you know, the tone weights ballad to the, the, the pumping banger that we've just put together. Um, so that's always been the case. So we always, I think we always try to work minimally, minimal elements, strong song, stands on its own two feet, and then see how it, um, how we can decorate it and propel it and all the rest of it. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure that's the method. That's, that's the strongest method. Yeah. And Pat, as a journalist, and uh, does, does that influence your lyrics or is it something you're always interested in? While you're in the band journalism, um, had I got a spin for you? Um, Yes. Well, journalism, just to the extent that you're, you're trying not just to write romantic cliche, and so therefore you're interested in the world and you're interested in stories in the world. Um, and and the, the idea that you could um, sing about, sing or the voice of a story, of a great story, classic one for that. Well, look at Valinda, is classic in that respect. I mean, that's basically a short story about an encounter with a woman out of control, but trying to stay in control, you know, and so you could see that as a Channel 4 Dispatches documentary, you know, um, and, and and it's interesting, we're doing a Neil Hannan song for this, this um, Hugh and Crown play the Irish songbook on uh, the 20th of March, and it's called An English Lady of a Certain Age, is that right, Greg? You know, yeah, a lady, of a, a lady of a Certain Age. English Lady of a Certain Age. And stories as a story song, we love story songs. So story songs fit very well with new stories and with kind of being curious about odd, quirky parts of life. So yeah, it helps. I would say it helps lyrically. It, it keeps it keeps things wide open for what you can be inspired by. You know? And uh, what was the experience like recording the debut album Seduced and Abandoned? How, how was that? <laughs> Sum it up in one sentence. <laughs> <clears throat> it was a very strange experience. Um, we signed because the way we've explained ourselves to you, you would understand that major record companies weren't quite sure what to do with us. So they came sniffing around and they kind of went, no, that's too much hard work. But there was two young guys that just left Island Records. They'd been working with Bob Marley, U2, and Frankie Goes to Hollywood, and they'd left and set up their own company. And they looked at us and thought, yep, 
that's quirky and crazy enough for us. Let's go with it. So they just left Island Records. So when they signed us, um, our manager, who was a dear friend of ours, said, I don't know how much money these guys have got. So is there any chance you can make as much music as you possibly can, as quick as you can? Because I'm not sure. So that was Alan's advice to us. So, you know, Pat and I picked up the baton and off we went. And, um, you know, we recorded uh, Suggesting the Band in, in Glasgow and in New York um, over the space of four months. And then we released it. And the first single from it was um, Labour Love. And then the second single was Strength to Strength. And then while they were being released and going up the charts, we were in the studio finishing off the records because we didn't have an album. And to be honest, I don't think the guys that signed us had the money for us to make an album, but they did once Labour Love was a hit. So we just kept going. And then after that was finished and we toured it, the manager was pushed again. So, I mean, Remote, the second album, came out the end of 88. So, I mean, that was just 18 months later. And then two years later, there was a third album. So we were just told to write be prolific and work really hard. And um, because of that, when I think back on it, I mean, there's there's some glamorous moments. There's, you know, the first time, I remember we did Wembley Stadium with Madonna and we did a few nights with her. And as a kind of, and that was, on, that was in the back of Labour Love being a big hit. And we had to get back to New York. So the record company put us on Concord to get back do. to New York. So there's memories like that, which you, you can't really forget. There's memories of, um, the Uptown Horns who played on played with James Brown for years coming in and playing that intro of Labour Love um, and the trombone player was called Bob Funk I remember I thought it was the best name for a trombone player so there's, there's I can't remember the exact journey I can't remember the exact schedule but there's moments that you do think and I remember I remember the photo session was with a famous photographer for the album cover of a guy called Jean-Baptiste Mondino um, and he had done Vogue with Madonna and stuff like that, blah, blah, blah. And he took her photographs um, on a joint over to Los Angeles. I remember that. We went over to Los Angeles from New York to get the photograph taken because just an abandoned. And I kept saying to our manager, I thought you said these guys had no money. <laughs> he said that. Well, you, it's not their money you're spending, it's your money you're spending. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> they actually, they, one, one of them actually showed us his black platinum American Express card. Which I think most of it, most of it, I think, was done on. You know, so that with you and Kai. because it, it, it just propelled you. I, I remember at the time, the, the record was just everywhere. So was there trappings of success? Did you deep? Did you dive deep into it? Uh, as I said, not, not, as, not as bad as you would think because the manager was always honest to, to keep going, right again, right again, right again. So you're enjoying the trappings of the hit of Labour Love and you're swarming about, you're doing all your gigs. 
you're also writing, looking for Linda and violently and ordinary angel while this is all going on, and you're at sound checks, you're running over tunes. Um, you're trying to keep your sanity. You're trying to keep your health. You're trying to keep. There's a lot going on. Um, so, no, there wasn't really um, that extravagant trappings. I don't think. Hold on a minute. I will confess that that my 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 standard of designer gear got better. <laughs> As, as the hits kept rolling in, and actually, um, I had a I remember the Museum of Scotland did a thing called Rip It Up and Start Again, which was like a history of Scottish pop, and they asked from me to put in their permanent collection for nothing, so I didn't let them do it. Uh, a 48-button, double-breasted Jean-Paul Gaultier nylon jacket, uh, Tightened in at the waist and pumped up at the pumped up at the shoulders. You know, I looked like a kind of I looked like a kind of science fiction gigolo or something. Um, and I did I did enjoy the record company saying, "All right, lads, we've got to take you round South Malton Street, London, and get you the latest doodah watch at Comme des Garçons, Jean Paul Gaultier, whatever." That was a bit excessive. That was a bit yeah. excessive, and I bloody loved it. But uh, now I, I then and then started to buy vintage, so I went to the other extreme. But um, yeah, that, that was a tiny wee bit of excess, which I slightly miss. Can I just ask you about the video for um, uh, Labour Love? Uh, I was just watching it again. And it, it, like in the video, you're being boxed in. And it looks like yeah. you're being boxed in. And then you're breaking free from this. And as a young band, up, as a young band I was thinking, geez, do they already know what's, going to, what's ahead of them? Like? <laughs> Maybe, uh, yeah, anticipation. Yeah. What are, I mean, yeah, there's lots to say about the huge <laughs> Labour Love video. I mean, one, it was made from a 35 millimeter, millimeter film that was used on um, a Leonard Rossiter and what she called Jackie uh, Joan Collins Chinzano British Airways advert. Remember them? Yeah. That's what yeah, it was made on. And the guy who made it, Peter Christofferson, was a founding member of Throbbing Gristle, <laughs> that famous radical punk band. And then, so I, that's just to give you a sense of how. The high and the low, the mainstream and the marginal were all squished together for a few fabulous 15 years since punk. You know? And we so, just uh, enjoyed it as much as we could. One of you's mentioned Top of the Pops. And we've asked, we've had a good few guests on who've told us of their experiences of their first Top of the Pops, um, you know, showing. Uh, Pete Williams from Dexys told us he came out all you know, gung ho. One of his mates threw a bag into the crowd and hit some poor girl in the face with the with the bag. What was your experience of Top of the Pops? And and uh, can you tell us just you know? I think growing up watching Top of the Pops, like like ourselves, it must be just unbelievable. Yeah. Go on, Greg. I thought you were going to tell him about your very first Top of the Pops without me. <laughs> Ooh, that's that's good. That's good. Well, you. I'll tell them after you tell them about your experience. No, you do first. Let's do it chronologically. That's right. Come on, no fighting. No fighting. <clears throat> right. Well, when I was a music journalist in London in 1985, I did an interview once with the Pet Shop Boys, uh, and it was backstage at Top of the Pops before they were about to do their first performance of West End Girls. And uh, they said, would you like to be in the crowd behind us? in the set, doing it, dancing away with all the young girls. I said, oh, yeah, for the sake of a sociological experience, yeah, sure, I'd love to. 
And so if you go to the Vines, you find the video online of the first ever performance. There I am up there in my wee denim jacket, my Doc Martens, shimmying right. away to... Uh, so that was my first time on Top of the Pops, and then the second time was with Gregory. And, but it was the Top of the Pops is, you know, a properly shabby experience. I mean, you know, the sets are crap. You know, the, 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 the audience is herded around all over the place. Broadcasting centres fall into bits. You know, Kenny G's playing his soprano saxophone all over the place backstage and you, you ask him to stop and he won't. The sandwiches are curling up at the edges. You know, it's all bathos, but it's still Top of the Pops. And I'm, I was looking at a Top of the Pops performance of me t'other day. I, I cannot figure out where I got all that confidence from. It's really weird. It's like you're looking at this confident alien being, you know, who just... It must, but it must have been that Top of the Pops was something that I'd watched all, all my life. And now you're on it, you're just thinking, I'm not going to do anything but take all the chances and make all the moves and have all the sass as much as I possibly can. So it's definitely, you're watching, you know, ambitious young men at that, what is it, what's the percentage, Gregory? 0.05%, 0.01% of music that makes it, I don't know. But you're looking at people who know that when they've got their chance, they're going to take it. So... Why be shy? You released your uh, second album, Remote, building on the success. And as you said, you've already had a few of the songs in the bag. How did you find that experience? Like the views, you know, the difficult second album? Um, we wrote most of it, in fact, all of it in Glasgow. Um, there was a beautiful old uh, Greek Thompson church that they converted into a recording studio called Savar. Um, and the backing track, the Labour Love was backing track was recorded there. Um, so we used to go there quite a lot to write because, you know, it spawned the, the big records for us in the first album. So we wrote the whole lot of it over there. And then we kept the same two producers that we'd used for Labour Love, Harvey and Jimmy. And we brought the multi-tracks over to New York again. And then we spent about three or four months in New York uh, dipping into the most amazing pool of incredible musicians. And because the first record had been so successful, not that we had a blank check, but um, the only thing that we didn't do was when we asked Stan Getz to come and play the solo in a song called Where We Wish To Remain, I met his son and he said, yes, Stan will come and play the solo because Ron Carter played bass on it. He said, but the fee is $12,000 for one solo. And I looked at Jimmy, the producer, and I looked and I said, excuse me? And he said, 12,000. I said, no. And Jimmy said, do you not want Stan Getz? I said, would you sign the check? So I'll sign the check. I'm allowed to sign the check. I said, and I think I phoned you, Pat. I can't remember if I did yeah. phone you and say, what do you think? Do you want Stan Getz? And we both agreed that, no, that's wrong, because he was just taking the piss. Um, so, Stan Getz, you're taking the piss. Yeah, well, he was. He was. So, I mean, um, well, his son was. His son was his manager. 
Um, and we got Michael Brecker to come in and do the solo. And Michael hardly, became... Hardly second best. Michael became quite a good friend. I got to know him and Sue's wife quite well. And every time they came to Glasgow for the jazz festival, we'd always look after them and we'd always hang out and stuff like that. So, um, yes, we, we, had, we had a blank checkbook. I mean, we had uh, Tito Puente on that record. We had uh, Will Lee, the bass player who played a lot with Donald Fagan and in the Letterman band. We had Pat called most of it. I mean, we had called Dennis Chambers. I stayed friendly with Dennis Chambers as well, one of the best drummers in the world. So remote was... Uh, Yes, it was an experience I'll never forget. You know, I, um, I remember going to see Ron Carter in the Village Vanguard after he finished the session with us, and he was so rude to me during the session. And it was like a bit of a, I don't know, I was dying to meet him and dying to talk to him, and everybody was kind of saying, well, watch what you're doing, Greg. And that was fine. Maybe he was grumpy, I don't know. But when I went to see him at the Vanguard that night, he was like a, bro he was like a brother to me. He was like coming over and saying, "Man, that was a great session." I was like, and I thought he was—I thought he hated every minute of it. So just you know, the, a lot of and then the the guy that you kept in contact with, Sly Stone's drummer uh, Andy Newmark. Andy Newmark. Andy Newmark stayed friends as well. He played drums on Violently and uh, More Power. So the record is littered with the yes. great and the good of New York sessions seen in the late '80s, and then. I don't want to kind of... Well, subsequently, what's happened is Pat and I use... Glasgow's got one of the best uh, music conservatories in the world, and the jazz course is one of the best in the world as well. So what happens is being based in Glasgow, I put the bands together, we've got, again, this huge pool of incredibly talented musicians, and a lot younger than Pat and I, you know, like 15, 20 years younger than most of them. And when you talk to them they say remote was such a huge record for them because, you know, all these players that they'd listened to and they'd heard about were on this band's album from um, Glasgow. So it was a very powerful record um, for us, uh, for our career and for experience and the confidence as young musicians, but it also spread far and wide um, and amongst the Glasgow music scene for what it showed could be achieved if you had the ambition. Can, can I ask you, with, with all the success, and, and like every band, there was highs and there was lows, did it put, you know, rock and roll is littered with brothers who have had strained relationships. This, did the success of the band put any stress on yourselves as brothers? Well, well, well the thing is, it obviously it did, but, you know, yeah, you know, growing up is fantastic. I love being a grown-up. It's really crap not being a grown-up. You know, not having figured out your problems and not having experienced bereavement and not having had your children and blah, blah, blah. It's really terrible. Um, so, you know, all that happens in public. Um, and, you know, but, you know, there's a line, there's a line in remote that says, you know, the tension that is all that we'll ever have, we may as well use it. And obviously that, I'm very, very delighted to report that's not the case. You know, there's so much more that me and Gregory are to each other, you know, after those tumultuous days. And we're still here. So we obviously fixed it, um, and I think, and I think the thing is that obviously a lot of the brothers' stuff in other bands is is partly looking for headlines. I mean, partly people are looking for headlines, and the and you know feuding brothers, you know, holding. You know. Do you know what? It's really tedious. It's much better to be in a better situation. Um, um, so you know, I know, but, but and and the and the upside of being brothers working in music is it is that you have a kind of 
sixth sense of when something is going well and also when something is going badly. And, you know, you can move quick and you can be dis dis decisive. Uh, and it doesn't mean to say we don't have fights. We, we, we do have fights. But it's usually on the basis, it's usually rare compared to that works, that works, that works, that works, that works. Uh, you know, that's, so it, it's... It, it, there's, there's bad, sad stories, you know, of Hewton brothers, um, and I'm very, very happy to report uh, that they are old news. Great. I've got the ever move is transparent to me. Uh, what have I been doing recently? Uh, I, as you've said, I've worked with I worked with the Scottish National Jazz Orchestra for a few years as their sound engineer. I worked with um, some animators doing some animation stuff for advertisers. Uh, worked with producing young bands, um, which took me to America and to Japan and to um, and I started doing front of house live sound, which I really enjoyed, and that opened up lots of doors for me. Because um, it was a good way of meeting lots of bands, um, and then recently, uh, I do a lot of restoration work, so audio restoration. Um, so, if we were doing this conversation and there was a, a, an air conditioning unit that was on behind me, I can take that out. Or stuff that's audio pollution when you're when you're trying to get recordings done. So I've been doing that for years, and I just fell into it. So, I mean, it could be as diverse as you would get stuff from video production companies where it was interviews, they needed to tidy up the background stuff and all that stuff. And um, I remember we were in New York years and years ago when they were doing the movie um, Bird. Clint Eastwood made a movie called Bird about Charlie Parker and yeah. Forrest Whitaker played Charlie Parker. So they were doing the music when we were in New York one time recording and I sat in, in a few of the sessions and they'd actually removed Charlie Parker's saxophone from these old 78 records. And I watched how they do it, how they did it. <clears throat> and it was intriguing because they couldn't play those old 78 records in a huge cinema. It's just, they're just, this fidelity's not high enough. So they took Charlie Parker off and they employed one of the bass players who was playing with us, Ron Carter, and our rhythm section. And they played to Charlie Parker, the original. So I remember watching the musicians and them getting so pumped about having Charlie Parker on the headphones with nothing else and they would play to him. So the technology that, 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 that they used to do that, I kind of knew about very early on and I got on board early on. It's a company called Isotope, it's called RX. And um, wind forward 20, 30 years, I find myself, I've got six old soul records to, to restore uh, this month. Um, and what these guys, I've got three clients, and they go to um, recording studio um, repossession auctions, and they just bid for a cupboard. So they go to Detroit, and they bid for a cupboard. They don't know what's in the cupboard. They win the bid, or they get partial uh, ownership of the, of the cupboard. They bring the stuff back, and they go through it. But they've got ownership of it. And then they find stuff they like, and they send me these recordings that are like... <laughs> 
<laughs> and you think, okay, Greg, Greg, can you sort it out? So I've been doing that since lockdown started. I've done about 20 of them now. And um, it's amazing because you're bringing these old records that would never be heard ever. That's them gone. You're bringing them back to life. And these guys are releasing them. And they're, they're getting 40, 50 quid for a seven-inch single. These old things are getting from cupboards. I mean, I don't know how much they're paying for the cupboard of tapes that they don't know what it is. It's a bit like that. What's that? Um, Storage uh, Hunters. Uh, kind of. Yes, yes. But only for soul music. Well, and it's not that. just those 60s soul music. There's lots of like really weird 80s, early 80s, like Zap and uh, Cameo and stuff. There's lots of really interesting stuff there. It's the ballads are beautiful as well. Before they got too lush, that kind of transition between late 70s and early 80s soul ballads. Um, yeah, so... That's what that's what I've been doing since lockdown. So it's been really, really enjoyable for me. Yeah, I've been stuck on Zoom. Um, <laughs> basically, I mean, it's, it's funny with Gregory. You know, you you're talking about. I mean, I I became a curator. What's a curator? A curator is like an editor in a newspaper, except of stuff and of experiences. So apart, and I did a thing called Future Fest, and I've done it since two thousand and twelve with a big organization called Nesta and it's just a festival about the future. So, I mean, I'm completely, I'm like a pig in shit. This is absolutely fantastic, you know? And we had people like Edward Snowden and George Clinton of, of Parliament Funkadelic fame and, um, you know, lots, Brian Eno, lots of different people coming in to demonstrate vision, be visionary about the future. Um, so that's that's fun. And I get those kind of gigs a lot. I'm still writing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I then I wrote a book called The Play Ethic, which means that I've got a kind of reputation for helping people to construct creative situations in companies. You know, whether, whether if the company's a bit stiff or a bit lacking in imagination, I can come in and create a space within it or next to it where by people's um, creative juices are reanimated, you know. So that's another sort of bit of a consultant as well in that a bit. Um, but, you know, tell me what I would rather be doing at the age of 57 for the next 10 years. I would rather just be making music. Thank you very much. You know, so um, everything else is far too hard work, you know. But <laughs> I know Gregory's laughing because he does all the work. <laughs> um, but, you know, to be honest, I, I'm, a, I'm a lazy old bastard at the age of 57. And I would rather just be shuffling my fat ass on the satin, satin cushions. And a big throne on stage and singing away, that would be fantastic. Rather than having to talk to clients about project management and key performance indicators. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit what made you decide to do it and uh, getting beaten by Shaky Stevens? I think that was your call on the song, Greg, wasn't it? Didn't you well, um, I've got um, I had a very glamorous friend called Claire who um, used to drive us all nuts. Her poor husband used to peer through his fingers, which used to leap in my uh, coffee table in full high heels and dance to Beyonce's Crazy in Love. Oh, and used to kind of 
Have you never seen that? So um, you would used to kind of try and avert your gaze. Is um, um, the the the, the sight that that phrase that's in uh, Brave, the Scottish cartoon. Like the father goes, "Avert your gaze, avert your gaze." So I used to feel sorry for her. Her husband Andy be going all clear off the coffee table and going, Oh Jesus. And then yeah, Claire was a fabulous looking girl. So um I remember one time she was doing her dance routine, it was a bit of a kind of thing, and she said, Your brother should sing that. I went, Well, Pat, I said, Yep. So it stuck with me. And then her drummer at the time was a guy called Paul Mills, who's like an older uh, guy from uh, upstate New York. And I mentioned it to him and he says, Oh, yeah, that's the Shy Lights. I said, what do you mean the Shy The Chicago Lights. It's an old soul group from the late 70s, and the track's called Are You My Woman? I went, what? So I researched it, and I found it, and wow, it was like Latin funk. It was, wow, I didn't, I didn't know. I only knew the Beyonce song. So Pat and I, when I said to Pat, because the speed of the verse um, lyrics are pretty much the same as kind of what Labour Love are, it's got that sort of attack and rhythm, a complex rhythm in the verses. I thought you should be able to handle that part. And then we I played part the Shy Lights track. Are you my woman? We both loved it. This great Latin ride symbol going all the way through it. So we built the track more around that old track. Beyonce just used just used the horns from that old Shy Lights track. Um, um, but I used a bit more of the groove from the original one, and it seemed to suit us. And then. Um, the guy, there was an engineer that we worked with in New York, a guy called Tony Maserati, and Tony had mixed Crazy in Love. So there was lots of synergy and lots of connections um, that made it, I guess, in hindsight, quite obvious to do. But it did raise a few eyebrows uh, when we actually decided to do it. And I, I do, I remember the show, the first round we did, and you nailed it, brother. I remember watching it back going, bloody hell, that's like, it's a difficult song to sing, I would imagine. Uh, it's a very, very difficult song to sing um, and also apparently ridiculous, but maybe not, you know, to have two white blokes uh, from Coatbridge uh, be singing this uh, R&B goddess's uh, anthem. Um, but we gave it a damn good go and got to the final and unfortunately were vanquished by Vibrating Victor. But, um, you know, that's fine because I think there were quite a lot of adverts paying for the whole show during in in the bits between the bits of the episodes that we were on, so so maybe maybe there was some connection there. I don't know, but um, it was nice to win, and and also it it was a nice. It's not as if we were perf we were performing in front of a panel, you know. It was just a vote thing. So I mean, I think I would have refused to do it if it was like. Simon Cowell like entity giving me the thumbs up or the thumbs down. I, I don't think I would. I'm not temperamentally suited to that. So uh, I think the way it worked out, it was cool and and it, and it revived us and it gave, put us back on the '80s, the revival circuit which we've been doing ever since and which is we're very thankful to. is a wonderful experience. Lots of nice resources and fans to come to that. Um, but yeah, the whole idea of it was basically the subtitle of it is "Hit Me Baby One More Time." Oh my God! Look at the state of that coming through the doors. That was basically the subtitle, and you know we were in pretty good nick. I thought, Greg, apart from the fact that we didn't have any hair, but that's who needs hair. You're so eighties. Is um, um, is the song still in your set? Uh, not recently, actually. Not recently. 
Depends what kind of festivals we're doing. Yeah, we do a piano vocal as well. We do a very good piano vocal version of it. I think you did it in Glasgow. Did you take a scene on the Glasgow show? Did you do it in Glasgow? Probably. Depends which one you were at. I think uh, it was on the Open Soul record, which was released in 2008. So we would play, we probably played it for about, so that TV show was 2005, six, and then the album was released 2008. Um, and we probably played it, yeah, until 2010, 2011. And um, we've not played it for a while, actually. Um, we're not gigged for a while. <laughs> Well, I was just going to bring on your 14 studio albums, and you mentioned the 15th coming up. So, when do you hope to get that out and released? <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, it's written, the, all the as it's parts of it's an electronic record. So, I just need to get in some sort of mindset of making a dance record for people who can't dance or not allowed to dance. Um, so I've watched a few artists release albums during lockdown. It's not been that successful for them because, you know, the main outlet is to go around and tour and visit radio stations and, and you know, just go and promote your record. And um, I'm just glad we didn't, we, we, we finished writing it just before the first lockdown. Yeah. So I'm quite glad that we got there. Um, but I'm under strict instructions from my manager and my brother to try and get it finished. So um, it's written. I just need to make make it. That's the, that's the thing I need to do. Combat melancholic bangers. <clears throat> that's what they are. Um, I, I know you guys have very strong Irish uh, heritage. And I know you've played gigs in Ireland many, many times. Yeah, my God. A, a gig or... The Irish Songbook coming up. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? So a lot of our contemporaries did YouTube gigs where you could just watch it for free, blah, blah. blah. And um, Pat and I weren't in that space. And plus, uh, he's in London and I'm up here in Glasgow. So we there's, the technology's not there yet that he, we can perform remotely live. So a lot of people were doing stuff that was a bit live in inverted commas. And you could tell that wasn't really... So the whole thing when Pat and I do piano vocal, it has to be, we have to be in the same room or it doesn't work. You have there's little nuances of, from your um, peripheral vision, you can see a shoulder move or a head move that you kind of think is something, you need to be in the same room. So you can't do that remotely. So we looked at different ways of doing it. And our manager, a business partner, uh, Doogie had said, there's this guy called Steve and he runs a company called livefrom.events. And why don't you talk to him? So I phoned up, Steve for me and he's he's a wonderful guy and um, I said Steve what makes yours different from any of the other things to do he's like Greg I love selling tickets I love making tickets I love selling them I love the look at them this guy's obsessed with tickets so he was coming at it from okay you can do live stream as much as you want but how are you going to convince people to buy a ticket to watch a live stream and YouTube's not been managed, able to do it and and the kind of volume that they think is going to be successful. It's very, very difficult to do. So the platform is as stable as a rock. Um, we've done four of these, three of them, four. Um, we do them once, once every two months and we sell a few hundred tickets and we chat live to the people that uh, come to the gig. And it's an incredible experience. It really, really is. And Pat and I, have had, the four gigs we've done have been amazing. So we try to do one every two months. So St. Patrick's Day was coming up 
And it was our business partner, Doogie, said, why don't you team it St. Patrick's Day and do something for St. Patrick's Day, bring people together. And St. Patrick's Day is such a global occasion. It makes sense to do it on net and be like a, be a global occasion. And another thing, just to go backtrack a little bit, those online gigs have engaged the fans that we've got in Australia, in Japan, in America, they never get to see us because they never come over here. So they, there's a lot more of them, South America, are engaged with this online thing, the offering that we're making. So on the 20th of March, uh, on a Saturday night at seven o'clock, Pat and I are going to play songs from the Irish songbook. So Everybody um, from Ewan McCall to Hosier. <laughs> are you going to do a Bing Crosby? Tora, Laura, Laura. No. <laughs> no. Funny enough. Funny enough. <laughs> No, we are, we, going, to, we are we going to sing the a song of the of the gig up on the let Chrissy take it the social media pages. Thank you, thank you so much. We are going to sing a song which is a, which is a song we literally learned at our father's knee, which is the mountains of Morn. Very good. And my father used to say, he said, this is one of the most ironic songs I've ever heard. I'm trying to remember the bit of it. They don't plant potatoes, nor barley, nor wheat, but there's men over there digging gold in the street. This is a bit what he always said. At least when I asked them, that's what I was told. So I just took a hand at this digging for gold. But for all that I found there, I might as well be from the mountains of Moan, roll down to the sea. So, you know, that's a family song, but it's not. It's, it's sentimental, but my father always said, look, at least when I asked him, that's what I was told. Of course, we're digging <laughs> for gold, you arsehole. What do you think we're doing? You know? So it's so that's how we'll begin it. And then it, the opportunity to go and sing Van, Glen, Church, you know, um, the Divine Comedy, you know, you two. Um, you know, what else are we singing? Uh, man, the, the, some, the script song, The Man Who... Oh, yeah. You know, it's just a good, I mean, I'm, I'm having a ball singing them because it's, there's, and there's a lot of, I can hear, I can hear in a lot of the singing performances, the kind of Irish show band heritage. I can hear a lot of people singing in a way that they know they have to capture people's attention quickly. Otherwise you've lost them. So there's a lot of, I'm really enjoying that in Hosea's voice. I'm enjoying that in Glenn Hansard's voice. I'm, in, I'm enjoying that in, What's the one the guy outnumbered? I can't even remember what what he's what he's called us, but the young the young guy who wrote made on outnumbered. Well, Dermot Dermot Kennedy. Dermot Kennedy. Dermot Kennedy. The, there's an urgency about all the vocalists that I really love, and I'm I'm really really vibing off that urgency. Very maybe a Celtic thing. I don't know. Oh yeah, definitely. And we'll we'll share all on our social media, and we encourage people to buy tickets. But we're going to ask you a question that we ask all our guests, and I'm going to ask this one to Greg Forrest because you were here early, Pat. So I'm going to ask catch Greg on the hop. You've a pound left in your pocket. You're in the jukebox. You're in the pub. It's the last hour of the night. What song do you pick? A good one. <laughs> is it one so? Is it one pound to play? It's one song, one pound. Um, Harvest for the world. Oh, there you go, man. All babies together. Everyone I see. Half of us are satisfied. What's your one? 
1957, only the lonely version of Frank Sinatra's "Once for My One for My Baby and One for the Road." Oh, well, we, we, awesome piece of music ever made. Well, two absolutely cracking choices. <laughs> and with that, we'll say to Hugh and Croy, Greg and Pat Kane, thank you very much. Um, it's a, you know, it was just brilliant to talk to you and we couldn't be more thankful. Thank you very much. Kieran and Derek, thank you very much. But this torch that I found it's gotta be drowned Or it soon might explode So make it one for my baby And one more for the road Well that was you and Cry. A good chat, good bunch of lads absolutely brilliant down to earth and uh just a great a great opportunity to talk to people whose whose music you've enjoyed and appreciated over the years yeah and it was interesting to see you know another another band of brothers as they say um who have obviously had their differences in the past but you know i put them together I put them behind them got together as brothers do and seem to be well grounded lads Really enjoyed the stories about the past and spending so much money on that John Paul Gaultier suit, which the museum <laughs> wanted. Um, we'd like to thank TrueFlow Energy Systems, our sponsor for this week. Uh, TrueFlow specialises in gaining maximum output from your energy system with minimal input in terms of fuel, effort, and cost. You can find them on trueflow.ie and also on Facebook. <laughs>